0: go ahead and join them down in Children's Church. And if you are third grade and older, your treasure seeker binders at the back so you can pick them up and take great notes today. Heavenly Father, you know that I've done my best to prepare for this um, lesson. And Lord, I don't have the words to reach the hearts of your people but your word never comes back empty. So we ask that you fill me with with your grace and give me the power to reach out to my brothers and sisters here today and share this beautiful message from our beloved Apostle Paul. In your name we pray. Amen. In his second epistle, Peter mentions that sometimes Paul can be difficult to understand. And for me, at least, today's passage was one of those times. So I had to kind of wrestle with it a little bit. And uh, one, of the, one of the first things I realized as I, was, as I was trying to get into this passage, if you look at the, first, at, at the first verse, it says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, And then he never finishes the sentence. In fact, he starts the sentence over again in verse 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So today's entire reading is a tangent. And I found it useful in order to understand what Paul was trying to tell me To go back and figure out where he had been and where he was going because although he has changed the subject, today's passage is intricately woven into the warp and the woof of his epistle and appreciating the connection really helped me to figure out what it was that Paul was trying to tell me in this letter. So if you go back... The end of chapter 2, Paul has been comparing the church with the temple in Jerusalem. Now, temple imagery is going to be something that's really relevant for his readers in Ephesus. And the reason is that Ephesus is the home of the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And I'd like you to hear how Antipater of Sidon, the man who first compiled the list of these seven wonders, describes this temple. I have set eyes on the walls of lofty Babylon, on which there is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge Labor of the high pyramids and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on anything so grand. Can you imagine an ancient temple that made the pyramids look insignificant? In the shadow of this great temple, the people of Ephesus must have thought that their little community of believers was not a very grand temple. In next week's reading, Paul is about to offer up a prayer of dedication for that little temple, the church of Ephesus. And I think if you'll think about it, you'll recognize how his prayer mirrors the prayer of King Solomon as he was about to offer the dedication of the first temple in 2 2 Chronicles. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven are not able to contain you, how much less this house. Let me remind you of the incredibly visible way that God answered Solomon's prayer as he filled the temple with his Shekinah, the cloud of his presence, and consumed the many sacrifices of Solomon with fire from heaven. And I believe that today's reading is to highlight Paul's confidence that this prayer of dedication is going to be answered lavishly. And he does that by talking about a mystery of revelation given for proclamation through tribulation. So first of all, the revelation. Everybody loves a mystery. We remember young Seth, week after week, going back to find out what what was going to happen on the next episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Maybe you were hooked on Lost. Or maybe you're like my wife, reading through every book that Stephen King ever wrote to try to figure out the secret of the dark tower. Well, Paul's mystery is way better than that. Now, Paul spent three years with the Ephesians, probably the most fruitful period of his ministry, and they knew him and they loved him. But Paul realized that his friends in Ephesus were going to take this epistle and distribute it widely throughout Asia Minor so that a lot of the recipients would be new Gentile Christian believers. These people had formerly been outside the law without the promises to Israel. No hope. Clearly able to recognize God's glory and his power through his works, but without a clue that he cared about them personally and every reason to suspect that he did not. Until they learned this mystery from Paul, it was like there was a veil, a curtain before their eyes, but the veil had been lifted, This mystery was hidden for the ages in God who created all things. It was nothing less than the meaning of life, the master plan for God's redemption of his creation. As Paul put it in chapter 1, we were chosen by God before the foundation of the world, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things on heaven and things on earth. These new Ephesian converts, ignorant of the law and a thousand years of Jewish sacred tradition, had to be brought up to speed with the revelation of this mystery that had been given to the Jews in three distinct stages. The first was what was revealed in the Old Testament, the mystery of iniquity. You see, before they could recognize the gospel as the good news that it is, they had to understand the bad news of their status under the law. Secondly, they had to understand the mystery of forgiveness. How Christ's finished work could redeem them and reclaim them from this awful fate. And finally, they had to understand the mystery of inclusion. How all of this could possibly matter to them, the outcasts. So first of all, the Old Testament mystery of iniquity. In the garden, Adam had access to God. And with that access, there was plenty. But after the fall, with separation from God, the resources necessary for life were scarce. They could no longer be spent at will on what you wanted, but had to be stored up for a rainy day. But this stored wealth became a target. And so we had to protect it. And how do you protect your stored wealth? By doling out wealth to others to gain power over them. And you couldn't dole out too much because if you did, you'd waste it all. Or it would be snarfed up by a rival who would then Challenge your power and take your wealth. So this was the law of the land in a fallen world. And then one day a demonstration project. Renewed access. God created a nation from slaves that he plucked out of bondage from the greatest empire on the earth and he led them out into a wilderness and there he told them in precise detail, 613 commands, I'm told, exactly what he expected of them. And he made provisions for what must be done if and when they fell short of the mark, as they did over and over and over. But... Even with the restoration of reliable access to God, it remained a scarce commodity, even in the land flowing with milk and honey. You see, the Levites of all the 12 tribes were the only ones permitted access to the holy place. And between the holy place where the Levites could enter and the most holy place where the mercy seat of God crowned the Ark of the Covenant, covenant, there was a veil, a curtain. And that curtain could be crossed by only one member of one house from that tribe, the high priest. And not every day, one day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the tenth day of the seventh month, and on no other day, He could enter into the presence of the mercy seat after he offered appropriate sacrifices for his own sins and for the waywardness of his people. He could enter. He must enter the presence of the Lord. And we learn exactly how stringent those requirements are in Leviticus 10 when Aaron the very first high priest, offers this ritual for the very first time. He is not permitted the opportunity to grieve the death of his two eldest sons as their dead bodies are hauled out of the sanctuary unceremoniously that very day. Now you might wonder, what does this have to do with me? Well, this is the part when I say, you know, I'm an okay guy. I mean, I know I'm not perfect. You see, I prefer to compare myself with other sinners instead of against that straight measuring stick that is the law of the Lord. Dr. Seuss might have put it this way. My heart is the land of solace alone where I never have sins, at least very few. As a matter of fact, I have only just one. Imagine just one little sin left, my son. The law of the Lord says, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. That doesn't leave room. For one sin. So whether you have one sin or a thousand, you remain a sinner in need of a Savior. Which brings us to the second part of our revelation. And that is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The living water, the bread of life, as Paul puts it today, the unsearchable Riches of Christ. Maybe you're painfully honest with yourself. You've had a look deep in your soul and you recognize it. You can no longer entertain delusions about its unlovely state. And you may be in despair thinking, what? is going to allow a wretch like me to walk with the living God. I can understand that problem. You see, someone who's never seen a butterfly would have a very difficult time understanding that a caterpillar crawling on the ground could one day fly. If you're that person, there's really really good news, and that is that one day, just over 2,000 years ago, there was another Shekinah, a divine intrusion into the cosmos. It was incredible that something so great as God's plan for his creation could be fit into something so small, so insignificant. As a little human baby. But for, 30, for, for 33 years. For the first. The last. For the only time. The law of the Lord. Was kept. Perfectly. And then. That one innocent man. That lamb. Died. For our sins was buried and rose from the dead. All exactly according to the divine plan. And at the very hour of his death, that curtain that we talked about between the holy place and the most holy place was torn in two. So now there is no more veil, no more curtain between us and God's mercy seat. As Paul puts in today's reading, we have access with boldness to the throne of grace. You may have made a shipwreck of your life. I have. But you've got to know, today is the day of your salvation. This minute. Don't walk out the door clinging to your despair. But grab hold of this awesome offer. But you need both hands to grab hold. And that means that whatever it is that has a grip on your heart, you have to let go. And I'm talking about your hopes, your dreams, your pride, your possessions, maybe some of them, maybe all of them. But the kingdom, the pearl of great price, is worth it because the king is worth it. The third stage of the revelation, and the one specifically entrusted to Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, was this mystery of inclusion. Christ told his disciples, Go ye into all the world and preach my gospel to every nation. He didn't say to every Jew scattered among the nations. He meant the nations, the outcasts, the staggering implications couldn't be grasped all at once. In chapter 10 of Acts, Peter recognizes that the tent of Israel was much greater than he could have ever imagined, that unclean things had been made clean. And in Acts 15, the church ratifies this. The Gentiles are now co-heirs with the Jews in promise. But how is that going to work? You know, the entire world could not possibly assemble in the temple. Gentiles weren't even allowed to enter the outer court, the inner court of the temple. Most certainly they couldn't go into the holy place that was reserved for Levites. And absolutely they would not be granted access into the most holy place where it was lawful only for one man to come and that on only one day of the year. My second point is this the revealed mystery was given for proclamation. And Dave recently pointed out to us that redemption may be an incredibly personal thing, but it is not a private matter. Let me give you a little illustration from the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7 to help to illustrate this point. It was the time of Elisha And the city of Samaria was surrounded by a hostile Syrian army. The famine in the city had gotten so great that some people in the city had begun to kill their infants and eat them for food. Imagine the plight of four lepers outside the walls, denied even the very dubious Security of those city gates. They became so desperate that they decided what we're going to do is we are going to go to the Syrian camp and beg for food. This was a death plan. But it just so happened as they got to the first tent, it was unoccupied. And they were able to go in, eat, and drink their fill grab up the clothes and the gold and the silver and run off into the woods. Emboldened by their success, they did it again and again. And they realized this camp has been abandoned. Let me read to you their response. Then they said, to, this is 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 9. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. Well, as it turned out, incredible news though that was, the citizens were a little skeptical. You see, they'd just read the latest bestseller and they realized that this was a classic example of a Trojan horse, as the author called it. But eventually, everybody in the city was convinced that it was okay to go plunder the Syrian camp. The lepers were right. This was way too great a miracle for four lepers to enjoy. Now, let me tell you about Paul, God's chosen vessel for promulgation of this news to the Gentiles. The other apostles were simple men. But Paul was a learned Pharisee, a doctor of the law, pupil of Gamaliel, one of the greatest scholars in Jewish history. This Gamaliel was the grandson of Rabbi Hillel, who was one of the most famous of the Jewish rabbis. And Paul's compatriots would would go on to become the Tanaim, the the writers of the main body of the Jewish Talmud, I'm sure that if Paul had remained a Pharisee, he would have been one of those Jewish scholars. Now, if Paul had been able to leverage his learning, his knowledge of the law and the prophets among his people he probably could have convinced the nation of Israel of the truth of the gospel and the Jewish rebellion and the civil war would have never taken place. And then the temple wouldn't have been destroyed in 70 AD. And this was a disaster that I believe Paul foresaw and longed to circumvent. But it was not the divine plan. What possible meaning? Well, Paul had been filled with grace for the purpose of proclaiming this news to the Gentile, and they were the ones least likely to appreciate his Torah scholarship. The Holy Spirit filled this man to overflowing, but not for his personal edification, not for him to save up, not for him to leverage so he could become an authority in Jerusalem. He had been filled up in order to give it away. The dwelling place of God would no longer be in Paul's beloved temple in Jerusalem. It would be in the hearts of the followers of Jesus Christ. But you know what possible meaning could this chosen status of Israel have if salvation's been given to the Gentiles? they have been waiting for the Messiah to come to restore the kingdom of Israel, the grandeur of Solomon. It wasn't to be squandered on heathens, What Paul's opponents, the Judaizers, failed to recognize was that with the kingdom had come a new era, the dawn of abundant access to God. The riches of Christ were now available in inexhaustible supply for distribution. The Holy Spirit dwelling in an earthly temple comes with power. But, here's the rub, he doesn't come as a guest. He comes as the master of the house. And so, with the spirit of our master, although we finally have it in us to live a godly life, exhibiting the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We have waived the right with the Spirit as our master to determine how those gifts are to be spent. And this proclamation goes out by no accident. We're, we're not rebound beneficiaries of the promise. It's easy to think that God got disappointed with the Jews and that he turned to the Gentiles. God has not. Is not and will not forget his promise to his chosen people, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. God keeps his promises. And this is something that is being manifested not just to the Jews, not just to the Gentiles, but to all creation. As Paul mentions it in verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places the angels in heaven are learning more about what God is like through his will as it's revealed in his work in his church. Ours is the face by which Jesus Christ expresses himself in the world today. Maybe you and I have put our trust in Christ, but we're still thinking of ourselves as if we were secret agents for the Lord. Maybe we love to come to church on Sunday and enjoy our fellowship, but we hesitate to offend our unbelieving neighbors and coworkers. And other, every other day, we just lead a life that's indistinguishable from theirs. You might be thinking, I can't persuade somebody to put their faith in Christ. We don't have to. That's not our job. That's the spirit's job. Our job is a demonstration project, just like Israel before us, to show just how much God can do with so very little. Finally, I want to bring to you the, your mind, the mystery of Christian suffering because it's by tribulation. In the first verse, Paul reminds the Ephesians that he is writing this letter to them from a prison cell. Now, isn't it natural to assume that if God's going to answer the prayers of a prisoner, the first prayer that he's going to answer is going to be for his freedom? Well... It's an old story to us, but just imagine how scandalized the Ephesian believers must have been. Their founder was in prison on charges of high treason against the emperor. Maybe, just maybe, there really was something a little off with his doctrine. How would God allow his servant to be in such a position? But Paul doesn't see his imprisonment as an imposition. He sees it. As a blessing. He is in chains. Because of the charge. Of carrying out. The will of Christ. By bringing the good news to the Gentiles. That was the charge. And in the kingdom of heaven. Those who have the opportunity. To suffer for the gospel. Have a place of great honor. And their prayers. Sound loud before the throne of grace. You see, Paul himself had been the recipient of just such a prayer. In Acts 5, we read, And when they had called in the apostles, oh, I'm sorry, this is Acts 7, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they stoned Stephen. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. The other apostles felt the same way about the privilege of suffering for the word. And when, uh, in Acts 5, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Paul knows, and he wants his Ephesian readers to know, that it is not the emperor Nero, who holds him prisoner, but Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords. Isn't it amazing? Paul has been told that he is to spread the word to the nations, and there he is in a prison cell. And because of that, he has the opportunity and the need to write This incredible epistle that reaches out across the centuries to you and to me. Paul's commission is our commission too. Paul was no secret agent for God and neither are we. True? We cannot, through our suffering, make things right with God. We don't have to because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. But, by our suffering, Christian suffering, we can get the word out about the greatness and the majesty and the power of God and His plan. And that, you have it on the highest authority, is something you will not regret. Blessed are you when others revile you And persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Those are the words of Jesus Christ. Matthew 5, chapter chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. We serve a crucified Lord. And the servant is not greater than the master. As we close, I want to challenge you to think this week, as you go about your daily life, think about this. If I were accused today of participating in the Great Commission, would there be evidence to convict me? Heavenly Father, We thank you for your incredible plan of salvation, that you cared for us, your unworthy and rebellious subjects, and that you sent your beloved son to pay the price for our rebellion, a price we could never pay. We thank you for any minor part that we can play in your unfolding plan of salvation and beg you for the grace to carry that part out in a way that reflects on the glory of your beloved son. And we ask these things in confidence in his name.